historically. The book of Acts is instructed historically, narrates the history of the first 30 plus years of Christianity. If you've read it, I know you know this. It starts with the birth of the New Testament church and it ends with Paul in Rome, in prison, awaiting his trial before Caesar. And the reason why history is so important for us is because Acts connects us with our heritage. It's important for us to understand that we have roots. And so the book of Acts, it connects us with our family roots. It is instructed historically. Number two, it also bridges the New Testament Gospels with the New Testament letters. It's instructed historically. And that's another way that it does that. There's a bridge in the New Testament. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament... The book of Acts forms a bridge into the New Testament letters. If the book of Acts wasn't there and we went straight from the Gospel of John into the book of Romans, guys, we would have a ton of questions. Who was Paul? How did the Gospel get to the Romans? What is all this stuff that Paul is talking about in terms of his experiences and sufferings? We would have a lot of questions, but you see, the book of Acts, it bridges the gap between the Gospels and the New Testament letters. It answers those questions, and it shows us how the Gospel got from Jerusalem to Rome and beyond. So the book of Acts, it's going to introduce us to churches and people that the New Testament letters were addressed to. It introduces us to the Apostle Paul, the author of the 14 New Testament letters. I'm showing a little bias here, including the book of Hebrews. But Paul, who was he? The book of Acts is going to answer that. Number two, not only is it instructed historically, it's also instructed theologically. Don't let that word scare you. Theology simply means the science of God, learning about God. And if you're a Christian, every single one of us should be theologians, learning about God. Now, this book is going to teach us a ton of stuff about God. <clears throat> but one thing that this book is helpful in is that it's going to teach us a whole lot about the person of the Holy Spirit. Because this book, it focuses in on the work of Christ by the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Holy Spirit is mentioned more than 60 times in 28 chapters. And here in this book, we're going to witness the Spirit's role in salvation and missions and evangelism and church planning and church life and church leadership. Guys, if you miss the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, then you're not paying attention. We're going to learn a lot of theology about who the Holy Spirit is, and what He does in His church. Number three, it's instructive not only historically and theologically, but guys, it is instructive practically. This is really important for us because a lot of information without applications for life, it just becomes stale doctrine. Guys, we need information that's going to impact our everyday life. When we walk out those doors, are the things that we're going to learn here, is it really going to matter? Is it going to matter when we go to the restaurant to get some food? Is it going to matter when we go to the shopping mall or when we go to our neighbor's house or we hang out with our friends? It has to matter. The Word of God is relevant. It's not just a dead, dusty book. And so the book of Acts, it's, it's instructive practically. Guys, Acts is a model. Listen to this. Acts is a model of normal Christianity. It's so important you get this. 
Because a lot of times people read the book of Acts and they think that is the exception. No, that's the norm. People that are not exhibiting the lifestyle of the book of Acts, they're the abnormal ones. In this book we see spirit-filled, spirit-led Christians loving and worshiping, learning and praying fellowshipping and caring and serving and giving and enduring and preaching and mentoring and growing. Guys, that's normal stuff. That is all normal Christianity. And so the book of Acts, it presents a pattern for right Christian living and right Christian serving. Here's number three. Why should we get into the book of Acts? Because it's inspired. The book of Acts is inspiring. Guys, if you're like me, and I know you are at this point, we all love to read good stories. We all love stories. And there are stories that inspire us. And the stories and examples presented in the book of Acts, they inspire us to live lives of pure devotion to Christ. They inspire us to endure hardships and persecution for His cause, to be set on mission for His glory by making Him known in this world through evangelism and discipleship. Man, you read the book of Acts and you just want to walk out of your house and go for it. You want to share the gospel. You want to mentor someone. You want to serve in the church. And the Holy Spirit uses Acts to motivate and move His church into action to obey Christ's great commission, which is to go and preach the gospel to every creature, which is to go and make disciples of all nations. Guys, we are going to be inspired to do that. So this morning, as we kick off our start, our, our series in the book of Acts, we want to start in verses 1 through 3. Now, the reason why I want to begin here is because it's a good place to begin, because it provides information about the book's authorship, the book's audience, and the book's aim. In verses 1 through 3, it provides practical, basic information about the book's authorship, audience, and aim. And it propels us into this story that's in the book of Acts with this with this. Glorious fact. Jesus is the risen Christ. Jesus is the risen Christ. This is where the book of Acts begins. And so here are the two points of this message this morning. Number one, verses one and two, we're first going to see the acts of the risen Christ. The acts of the risen Christ. And then in verse three, we'll spend time talking about the appearances of the risen Christ. The appearances of the risen Christ. Let's begin by talking about the acts of the risen Christ. In verses 1 and 2, it says, In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Number 1. We're introduced to the author. Now, when you look at verse 1, you see the pronoun I. That I is a reference to Dr. Luke. We know this because he refers to his first book. The first book here that you see in verse 1, it's a reference to the Gospel of Luke. So, the same author of the Gospel of Luke is the same author of the book of Acts. Guys, 
Acts is the continuation of gospel of the gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke. So think of it as volume one and volume two. Now Luke wrote this book sometime before the end of Paul's first imprisonment in Rome, which is about 62 A.D. So that's the author. Who wrote it? Dr. Luke. Number two, the audience. Here we see in verse 1 that Acts is addressed to a man named Theophilus. It's a great name. Theophilus literally means God lover. What a great name to have. God lover. Now, in Luke's previous book, the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 1, verse 3, Luke called him most excellent Theophilus. The title Most Excellent, historians agree, it designates a person's nobility and political status. So whoever this guy Theophilus was, he was a noble person and probably involved in politics. In fact, here's something interesting. It's generally believed among Bible teachers that Luke was at one time Theophilus' slave. You know, today when we think of doctors, we think of people that have great jobs and are in high position. But did you know that in ancient times, doctors were commonly slaves? That interesting. Doctors were the slaves of rich owners. And so historians and Bible scholars generally agree that Luke probably was the slave of Theophilus, but when Luke and Theophilus was converted to Christ, Theophilus released Luke so that he can continue in the ministry and Theophilus most likely funded financially the writing of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. So that's the author, Luke. The audience, Theophilus. Now the aim. <clears throat> what is the aim of this book? It's always good to know why a book was written. Now it's important for us to understand that the book of Acts continues where the Gospel of Luke concludes. The book of Acts continues where the Gospel of Luke concludes. Look at it, verse 2. <clears throat> concerning the first book that he wrote, Luke said, This is what I wrote concerning Jesus until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He's reminding Theophilus, this is where I left off in volume 1. I left off with the ascension of Jesus. I left off with Jesus commissioning his disciples to preach the gospel. In fact, in Luke 24, verses 49 through 53, it says, And behold, Jesus speaking here, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So Luke is reminding Theophilus, that's where I left off in volume 1. Now, as Luke begins the book of Acts, Luke tells Theophilus, everything there... Chapters 1 through 24 of the Gospel of Luke. Guys, that was just the beginning. That, that was just the beginning of the work of Christ. Notice there in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. He said, in the first book, Theophilus, I had dealt with, listen, all that Jesus began 
began to do and teach. The reason why I stress that is because sometimes when we read the Gospels, we think the birth of Jesus, his childhood, his baptism, his temptation, his three and a half years of ministry, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, that's the complete story of the life of Jesus. No, guys, that's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. Guys, the book of Acts is the continuation of the actions of Christ. The book of Acts is the continuing story of what Jesus is doing. But before I get into that, let me stop for a word of application. I want you to notice here that it says all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, I believe that words are important, especially when we talk about the Bible. And I believe because God is the one who authored this book, that not only every word, but the placement of the words are also important. I don't think it's by coincidence that Luke stresses the fact that it's all that Jesus did, then taught. Guys, let's think about this practically. The ministry of Jesus Christ included both actions and words. But it's important for us to note the order. Actions before words. Actions before words. Guys, the quality of Jesus' actions validated the quality of Jesus' words. Before Jesus preached his first sermon, you guys know, you've read the Gospels, before Jesus preached his first sermon, his actions were already approved by God the Father. Remember the baptism? God said, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Guys, too often what people say is canceled out by how people live. Not in the case of Jesus. Guys, Jesus is the example to follow. We should preach with our actions before we preach with our words. But going back to the flow. Guys, Acts tells the story of the continuing acts of the risen Christ. Now this title, Acts... Now, for some people, they don't know why this book is called Acts. In some of the Greek manuscripts that were discovered, the, this, this story is labeled Acts. And the reason why it's called Acts is that it was often used to describe the achievements of great men. So, historically, if there was a person that you wanted to focus in on, a great general or a king, you would begin to talk about the acts of that person. Now, here's the thing. Some of your Bibles might have the title, The Acts of the Apostles. Now, keep in mind that title is not the inspired word of God. It was something that was added to it by men. Because the title, Acts of the Apostles, is a little misleading. Because when you read the title, The Acts of the Apostles, you think you're going to get all of the acts of all of the apostles, but you don't, do you? You get some of the acts of some of the apostles. For example, chapters 1 through 12, it's really about Peter. Chapters 13 through 28, it's really about Paul. But we're talking two apostles, and we're not also including all of their acts. Guys, a better title for this book, Acts, is The Acts of the Risen Christ by the Holy Spirit through His Church. 
Really, this book is the continuation of the actions of Jesus. It's about what Jesus does in the world by His Spirit through men such as Peter and Paul. Guys, think about this good stuff here. Jesus continues to do and teach by the Holy Spirit through His church, the body of Christ. That means that the same Jesus working in the Gospels is the same Jesus working in the book of Acts. And listen to this. He's the same Jesus working in our world today. So why would we not be courageous? Why would we not be venturesome? Why would we not move forward by faith? Guys, the same Jesus that we read about working in the Gospels is the same in the book of Acts. And he's the same Jesus working in our churches and in this world today. Nothing's changed. It's the continuation of the story of the actions of Christ. That is the acts of Christ, the risen Christ. But now in verse 3 we see the appearances of the risen Christ. In verse 3 it says, He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Guys, this is the point that is going to propel us into the book of Acts. Verse 3. So you've got to get this. Verse 3 is important. Guys, the message of Christianity is about the risen Christ. Let me say that again. The message of Christianity is about the risen Christ. Guys, listen, there is no Christianity without the risen Christ. No Christianity. This is what makes Christianity different than the other religions of the world. You remove Buddha out of Buddhism, you can still have Buddhism. You take Muhammad out of Islam, you still have Islam. But you take a risen Jesus out of Christianity and you no longer have Christianity. It's about a person and that person is living in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, Paul said, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Guys, the validity of Christianity either stands or falls on the answer to this one crucial question, Did Jesus really rise again from the dead? The issue of Jesus' resurrection is that important. Because if he's still dead somewhere, and his body decayed somewhere, then we should just pack up our stuff, close the doors, and just go out into the world and live as we want. But guys, Jesus is alive. The fact is, Jesus rose again from the dead. The New Testament declares in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. That's why I love these words in verse 3. Luke tells us Jesus, listen, presented himself alive to them, speaking about the apostles, after his suffering, listen, by many proofs. The New King James Version translates it by many infallible proofs. That's unmistakable proofs. The New American Standard translates it by many convincing proofs. Guys, this is an encouraging thing. Our confidence in Jesus' resurrection is founded on solid evidence. 
In fact, one such convincing proof is the reliable testimony of reliable witnesses. Guys, in a court of law, at least in the United States, if you want to establish an accusation against someone, all you need are two or three reliable witnesses, preferably eyewitnesses. Guys, the New Testament manuscripts provide more than five hundred reliable eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. Wow. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8, Paul the Apostle wrote, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, where they died and went to heaven. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul. The reason why that statement is so impacting is that it keeps the resurrection of Jesus in the realm of history, not legend. When you talk about legend, we could talk about people, yeah, so-and-so a thousand years ago, 5,000 years ago, they saw this, and they saw it to be true. And, but the thing is, you can't question those people. You can't question those people to see if, they, if their testimony was reliable. Paul here says, guys, we have eyewitnesses, and they're still alive. You want to take us to trial? You want to investigate? You want to probe? You want to ask questions? Bring it on. We're still alive. We can present to you facts, eyewitness facts. Facts of the resurrection of Christ. And during the 40 days between his resurrection and ascension, Jesus appeared to his apostles many times on different occasions, providing proof that he is the risen Christ. He appeared to his apostles. Verse 2 calls them the apostles whom he had chosen. These were men that Jesus chose and called and commissioned to be his official ambassadors in this world. And we learn the names of these apostles here in chapter 1, verse 13. And these are men that had followed Jesus during his three plus years of public ministry and continued with him after his resurrection from the dead. And the risen Christ appeared to his apostles by many convincing proofs, here's the reason why, to dispel any doubts about his resurrection. Guys, the the men, these men saw Jesus with their own eyes. And they felt him with their own hands. He presented himself alive to them, appearing to them. Guys, don't you think if you're going to go out and preach about Jesus that died and claimed to be risen again from the dead, shouldn't you be sure that that really happened? Knowing that you're going to die for it? That's why it was so important for Jesus to present convincing proof to them that in their preaching, in their suffering, when they're chained in prison, or when they're standing before the executioner, they're not doubting. They're not thinking, well, I Maybe I was wrong. No. No, it was convincing proofs. They went to their grave convinced that Jesus rose again from the dead. In John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29, 
we see Jesus giving one of his disciples convincing proof. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came, so the other disciple told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now we call him doubting Thomas, but I think of him more as skeptical Thomas. He was a skeptic. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you, or in Hebrew, Shalom. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's you and me. Luke 24, verses 36 through 45. Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. Shalom. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I am not a ghost. Because ghosts don't have bodies, as you see that I do. And he spoke. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. Still they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. Then he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he ate, and he ate it as they watched. Which I think is always an interesting evidence that he rose again from the dead. He ate food. Eating food is biblical, guys. I like that. (laughs) Then he said... When I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. But guys, not only did Jesus appear to them and they saw him and touched him, but guys, they also heard him. They also heard Jesus. It said that for 40 days he was speaking about the kingdom of God. Guys, the kingdom of God has been the message of Jesus before his death and resurrection and after his death and resurrection. The kingdom of God is the realm where God is king. And the Bible teaches us that God's kingdom is eternal. It's characterized by holiness, righteousness, truth, and joy. And at the second coming of Jesus Christ, Jesus is going to establish that kingdom here on this planet. And this is what we pray for on a daily basis. When we say, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom, he's talking not about a spiritual kingdom, but a literal physical kingdom of God. And he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus is announcing the coming of that kingdom, and it's going to come when he comes back. But in the meantime, until that kingdom physically comes to the earth, until that time happens, God is populating that kingdom with regenerated people. This is what we're doing here. When we're preaching the gospel and leading people to Christ, converted, regenerated people, they are populating the kingdom of God, and we're going to live in that kingdom forever when Jesus Christ comes and establishes it. Because the only way into that kingdom is the new birth. Remember Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you will not see, you will not enter the kingdom of God. 
That's why there's evangelism. That's why there's missions. Guys, you understand that evangelism and missions is a work that is temporary. Because when the kingdom of God comes, there's going to be no more need for evangelism and missions. The time to preach the gospel, the time to trek out throughout the world and make disciples is now. And next week, Lord willing, we are going to learn about the power that God supplies for us to go and reach those people so that the kingdom of God can be populated. So the real question for us this morning is, are you a part of that kingdom? This morning, what our focus is, is the fact that Jesus is alive. So I want to finish with this. I want to finish with application. I want to give you something that you can walk out of that, out through those doors without of this room, and saying, okay, I've got stuff that I can think about and put into practice today. And everything. Here's the application. Let's think about what the resurrection of Jesus Christ means for you and me today. Guys, in fact, we meet on Sunday, every Sunday, to celebrate the risen Christ. I mean, I wonder how often we give ourselves to think of the resurrection of Christ. Is it only during time of Pasqua, Easter? Every Sunday we get together, we should be celebrating the risen Christ. Because, guys, our, our Savior, our Jesus is a risen Savior, a risen Christ. He's a living Christ. In Revelation 1, 17 and 18, Jesus said, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive Furthermore, or forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is the Jesus that we celebrate every Sunday. So here are six reasons why the resurrection of Jesus should be important to you and me today. Number one, it affirms his deity. Why do I know that Jesus is God? Because he's alive. He rose again from the dead. Romans 1 4 says Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Because Jesus is alive, guys, you should be worshiping Him as God. Nothing less than God. To worship God, anything less than God is idolatry because you're creating a God that doesn't exist. The God that is Jesus, He's gone. Number two, it validates the Christian faith. As I already read from 1 Corinthians 15, guys, if Jesus is still dead, then there's no Christianity. So if Jesus is alive, how much more passion should we demonstrate in Christianity? Number three, it affirms our justification. Romans 4.25 says Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You know what justification means, right? It's God's legal declaration. We are innocent. All of the charges, all of the guilt of sin, past, present, and future has been absolved. It's been dealt with at the cross. We are justified, righteous, holy, pure in the sight of God. If you believe that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead for our justification, then why do you continue to live in guilt and condemnation? Why do we allow ourselves to become debilitated? Why do we allow ourselves to not progress in Christian life? Because we're constantly listening to the lies of Satan. God doesn't love you. You're no good. You're disqualified. When the resurrection says you're justified. Reason number four to affirm is his sovereignty. Romans 14, 9 says, For to this end, 
Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Guys, if Jesus really is alive, and that should really impact your perspective of how you view Christ. Who's in control? Who's in charge? Jesus or you? So often we talk about, it's my life, mine to do with I please, and God responds, show me the receipt. God says, I made you, I purchased you. My son, he is the ransom price. I hold the receipt to your life. So do you understand how absurd it is for us to say, I'm going to live my life as I please without any consideration to the sovereign rulership of Christ when Christ died and rose again to this end that he would be Lord of all? That kills complacency. It kills apathy. It kills self-centeredness. Number five, it brings us to a living hope. In 1 Peter 1, 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There is a hope that we've been brought to. That hope is about future glory. And it's a living hope because our hope is all in a living Christ. And I'll tell you what, hope is a good thing to have because... That's what we need to endure. It's interesting, shortly after World War II, some Swedish scientists decided to do an experiment on some rats. And they took a, they took a whole bunch of rats and they put them into two categories. One, rat, one group of rats they put into a, a bathtub filled with water and the shower running. And these little rats, they were in that water trying to stay afloat, but they survived 10 minutes at best, until they all drowned and died. The second category of rats, same exact kind of rats. They took these same rats, put it in the exact same environment. Bathtub full of water, shower running, but before they all drowned, the scientists rescued these rats, they dried them off, they let them rest, then the next day they put the same rats in the same exact environment. But this time, instead of lasting for 10 minutes, they lasted for more than 36 hours. They experienced hope. These rats... Experiencing salvation the first time was now kicking and moving and enduring and persevering because they were hoping for a second salvation. And guys, the Bible is filled with promises of the return of Christ. The Bible is filled with promises of future glory, big glory. The Bible is filled with promises about heaven. So we're not those Christians that give up. We persevere and move forward. And we do it because Jesus is alive. Because he's alive and our hope is living because he's alive. Guys, I have the assurance the same way he rose again from the dead, I'm going to rise again. Which brings us up to point number six. It guarantees our future resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15.20 says, But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And guys... This was great excitement for the early Christians, and it should be for us. Guys, when we die, it's not the end. My dad passed away February last year. It was sudden. He was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. I was 
literally walking out the door in 2010 to do our Christmas service, and I got the phone call from my mom saying your dad was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And, I was, and, and it was totally God's providence because my wife and I had already bought tickets to go back to the States in a couple of days. But, man, I'll tell you what, all the crying I could do, I did in those two days. I got home, or I, I, when I got to the States, I got to my parents' house, and even at the airport, I, I, nothing could have prepared me for how I saw my dad. He, he was literally just wasting away physically. And it was great. I got to spend Christmas with them. Got to spend my birthday with them. But on February 8th, I was there holding him as his life was departing from his body. And I got to whisper into his ears, go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. And my dad went to Jesus. When we buried him, we buried him in his favorite suit. We buried him with his favorite golf shoes. We buried him with a Bible in his hand and a golf club in his hand, with a golf club, with a golf club on his hand, and we buried him with a picture of the family. Why? Because I know he's going to rise again from the dead, and when he does, I'm going to make sure he rises again in his favorite suit and with his favorite golf club, with his Bible and a photo of the family. Guys, this is our living hope because Jesus is alive. So the question for us this morning as we finish up is, has the resurrection of Jesus become a living reality in your life? Theoretically we believe it, but is it being realized in how you live? Because too many Christians today are living as if Jesus is still dead. The story is told of Martin Luther, the German reformer. Martin Luther entered into a season of deep depression and he chose to remain there. And one day his wife Catherine came downstairs in their house dressed in a black mourner's dress, a dress that you would wear to a funeral. And as she sat down at the table, Martin looked at her and said, Honey, who died? And Catherine said, God died. And Martin Luther, shocked, he said, Catherine, do not speak such blasphemies. And his wife said, Then Martin, stop living like it. Those are words only a wife can say with us. <laughs> Guys, is your life consistent with the message of a risen Christ? This is good for us to start here in the book of Acts because everything past this point, here in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, you are going to read about men and women that live life every day as if Jesus is alive. That's why there's nothing boring in the book of Acts. How can you be bored with a risen Savior from the dead? And yet so many Christians are. The reason why is because the reality of the resurrection hasn't become reality. So this morning as we finish up, the question, is your heart still shrouded in the deadness of grave clothes? Or is it rejoicing in the celebration of resurrection life of Jesus and I can't think of a better way to close our message than with the words of Jesus. John 11, 25 and 26. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is one of the most profound, probing questions Jesus asked. He said, do you believe this? How do you answer that? By the way, you would have. 
the resurrection of Jesus was a living reality for these first Christians, and the world could see it. Guys, let it be true for you and me. If you believe that Jesus rose again from the dead, live like it, and let the world see it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning for our time in your word, again, we thank you. And Lord, I want to thank you, Lord, for the investments that are being made in the minds and hearts of these people, hearing your word and drinking it in, knowing that your word is alive, it's living, it's going to produce good fruit. And so, Lord, I pray that we would just start here as we get started in the book of Acts. And that the one thing that we can take from is the fact that Jesus is alive. And we want our lives to show that off in this world. So bless your people, we pray. Be honored and glorified. And thank you that Christianity is all about life. In Jesus' name.